remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. A few weeks ago, a friend of mine was speaking to a room full of non-Christian teenagers, and in her talk, she asked them, do you think it's wrong to get ahead in life by lying? She was expecting almost everyone in the room to put up their hand. But to her surprise, only a third of them did. And now I guess some of them were probably just too embarrassed to stick up their hand in a public meeting. But still, only a third thought it was wrong to lie and cheat in order to get ahead in life. It was a reminder to me that our society is becoming less and less Christian and its values less and less godly. Now, please don't hear me wrong. I'm not one of those people who thinks that everything was simply better in 1950. I'm not. And it wasn't. But I do think it's fair to say that in lots of ways, our society is becoming less godly. For a long time, people of all backgrounds looked to the Bible for some kind of moral guidance. But now our values are increasingly post-Christian, post-truth. And that makes it harder to live a godly life in public. I met a student this summer who told me that a surprising number of his friends openly admitted to stealing things when they were in the self-checkouts, uh, um, self-checkouts in Tesco's. Another person that I met this week told me that most of the people in their office have absolutely no problem with slightly bending the rules on how much they claim on their expenses at work. More and more, that, that's the expectation in our society. So how do you stand out in a post-Christian society? How do you live a godly life? in an ungodly world. We've said throughout this series that Titus is all about the knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. And so far, we've seen what that means in church and at home. So in church, it means we need godly elders who will teach the truth and exemplify it in their lives. And at home, it means we need ordinary Christians transformed to live self-controlled lives by the gospel of grace. But what difference does the truth make when we're not at home or in church, but in the world, in public, in our offices, our universities, our communities? 
It's a question which the Cretan church would certainly have asked. Cretans were, as we've said a few times already in this series, notoriously ungodly. Actually, their reputation was so bad that the verb to Cretanize in ancient Greek means to swindle. I mean, imagine living in a place that was so ungodly that when someone says, you've just been mile-ended, or they just elephant and castled you, what they mean is all your stuff just got nicked. That's the society that the Cretan Christians spent every single day of their lives in. So how do you live a godly life in an ungodly society? It's a question which any government in the world would pay pay millions to know the answer to. How do you create citizens who are obedient, public-spirited, community-minded? And it's a question with a lot of competing answers. Do we withdraw into a holy huddle? like the false teachers on Crete wanted us to, wanted the Cretan church to? Or do we try and transform society through social justice, as many Christians today would argue? How do you live a godly life in an ungodly society? That is the question that Paul sets out to address in Titus 3. And just like Titus 2, his answer splits into two parts. First, the pattern of godliness in verses 1 and 2. And then in verses 3 to 7, the gospel power source of that godly life. And those will be our two headings this evening. So firstly, the pattern of godliness in an ungodly society. Look down with me again at verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Paul's pattern that he gives us in these verses, it splits into two commands. First, we are to be submissive to our leaders. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. One of the things that the Cretans were known for in antiquity was their rebelliousness. One historian said that they were involved in constant broils, both public and private. And the false teachers on Crete were little better. In chapter 1, verse 10, if you look just over the page, you'll see that Paul calls them insubordinate. And in verse 16 of chapter 1, detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But by contrast, Titus is told, remind them, remind the Cretan church to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient. Isn't it interesting that Paul says, remind them, as if this is something that they've heard from him before? I don't think that this was a marginal theme in Paul's preaching. It's something he thought it was worth saying more than once. And the rest of the New Testament explains what it means and why it matters. So 1 Timothy 2 verse 2, it means we should pray for our king and for all who live in high positions. 1 Peter 2.17, it means we should honor those in government, both in the way we live and in the way we speak. Romans 13.7, it means we should pay our taxes Romans 13.2, it means we should keep the law. It's something Jesus taught. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. And it matters because of where Caesar's authority comes from. Remember what Paul says in Romans 13.1, there is no authority except from God. And those rulers that exist have been instituted by God. Our obedience to secular authorities is really obedience to God's authority. And of course, that means that we should obey them, both when we think we might get caught 
and when we know we won't. That's where I think this probably makes the biggest difference to us. I mean, most people will keep the law when they know they'll be punished if they don't, right? Not many will keep it when they know they won't be. But Titus 3 means that we should keep the speed limit even when we know there's no speed cameras. It means we should keep to the time limit on our stay-at-home exam even when we know that our lecturer has no way of knowing whether we have or not. It means that we should be honest about how much that business trip will really cost even when we know we could claim back a little bit more than it actually did. Because God in his goodness has given us rulers to punish evil conduct, to commend what is good. And for me, this makes the biggest difference when I'm on my bike and I see the lights go red ahead of me and I just know I'll get away with it. Nothing will happen if I just keep going. And I have to remind myself that God in his goodness has given us laws to keep us safe and he commands us to obey them. And so this week, as I've been cycling in, I've been forcing myself to stop at every red light and to use that time to thank God that I live in a country where there are good laws and good government. And maybe you can ask me how that's going next Sunday. (laughs) It's worth saying this verse does not mean we should never disobey our rulers. No, we obey them because their authority comes from God. And so if they use that authority to contradict what God says in his word we are allowed to quietly ignore what they command. We must obey God rather than people. But so long as their commands, their decrees, their laws are consistent with God's word, we're commanded to obey them, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Secondly, we're also to show courtesy to all people, halfway through verse 1, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. When I lived in South London, we used to have this bathroom that would always leak into our downstairs neighbor's ceiling, and she found this rather annoying. And however hard we tried to have the leak fixed, the water always seemed to find its way through. And I remember one day when she actually stormed up to our door and started hammering on the door to kind of have it out with us about this pesky bathroom of ours. I don't think I actually dealt with it that well at the time. I think I probably just hid in the bathroom until she left. But Paul says the way that we approach those kind of situations says a lot about our gospel transformation. We're to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy. Note the fourfold emphasis on all here. We're to be ready for every good work to speak evil of no one, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Paul is thinking of a complete pattern of life, one that's evident to everyone we interact with and in everything we do. And like in Titus 2.12, it has both negative and positive aspects. So negatively, we're to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling. We're not to spread gossip or to pick fights. But positively, we're to be ready for every good work, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. In some ways, it's quite understated, isn't it? This isn't a program for radical social reform. If you're looking for a social justice agenda, I think you'll be disappointed. But still, it's radical. Still, it's countercultural. Still, it's beautiful. 
One writer sums it up like this. In relation to everybody, irrespective of race or religion, we're to be conciliatory, courteous, humble, gentle. So when your neighbor is hammering on the door to complain about something you've done, do you start shouting back at them and give as good as you get? Or do you apologize, take the hit, even if it wasn't necessarily your fault, and make an extra effort to be friendly to them the next time you see them? Or when a lost tourist steps out in front of you as you cycle home, do you give them an angry lecture about the rules of the road and cycle off sort of passively, aggressively shaking your head? Or do you apologize for nearly cycling into them, kindly point them in the right direction, maybe invite them to visit your church while they're in London? Because that's what Paul would want us to do. Show perfect courtesy to all people. Be gentle. Speak evil of no one. Be ready for every good work. That's what the pattern of a godly life in an ungodly society looks like. Of course, we can never do that on our own, can we? If everyone else in your office thinks it's fine to bend the rules when they submit their expenses, you will never find the strength to do that just from within yourself. I don't know about you, but I would much rather have the all-expenses-paid business trip. No, just like our lives at home, we need the gospel to transform us, to change our desires before we can actually do this. And that's where our second point comes in, the power for godliness in an ungodly society. Back in chapter 2, verse 11, we noted that the word for indicates that everything that follows functions as an engine for the godly life that Paul describes there. And the same is true in verses 3 to 7 of our passage. You can see in verse 3 that Paul once again uses that key word, for. But whereas last time he launched into an explanation of God's grace, this time, interestingly, he begins with an explanation of our sin. Verse 3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, Slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. All through this series, we've been talking about how ungodly Crete was. And yet now Paul reminds us, you were no better. I was no better. We were no better. Uh, John Stott, in his commentary on this verse, suggests that its description of our sinful state divides into four pairs. So first... We were foolish and disobedient. That is intellectually ignorant of God's, of God and his truth and morally resistant to God's will. Secondly, we were also led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. That is, we weren't just foolish and disobedient, but completely, utterly, hopelessly so because we weren't in control. Our minds had been led astray by Satan, the deceiver, the one who blinds the eyes of unbelievers. And our hearts were held captive to passions and pleasures. We were enslaved to whatever emotion happened to take our fancy. And that internal captivity, well, it led to external misery. We were, thirdly, passing our days in malice and envy. Negatively wishing evil on others, malice. Positively feeling jealous of any good that they received, envy. And therefore, unsurprisingly, and fourthly, 
hostility became a regular feature of our relationships. We were hated by others and hating one another. It's a pretty devastating assessment of our condition, isn't it? Far from being obedient to our rulers, we were disobedient. Far from showing ourselves ready for every good work, we were enslaved to evil passions. Far from being gentle and courteous to all people, we spent our days in malice and envy. It's a devastating assessment of our condition. And yet we have to admit, it's a fair one. Without Christ, we were slaves. We can't control what we do. If we were to try and live for even a single day in exactly the way that Paul commands us in verses 1 and 2, none of us would even make it more than a few hours. I doubt I would make it even more than 10 minutes before I felt angry towards someone or jealous to someone or just fell short of showing perfect courtesy towards all people in some way. And that's what Paul is saying. You can't do this. Without Christ, you are slaves. Our minds are a sink and lurking place for every kind of filth, as one Christian writer puts it. And maybe you're here this evening and you're still clinging on to that idea that deep down, really, you're a good person. You don't need rescuing. You can do it yourself. But just think about the things that you've thought even today. Do you really want those things shared in public with your spouse? Your friends, your family? I doubt it. I know I wouldn't. We might not like to admit it, but Paul is right. Without Christ, we are slaves. We're no better than the ungodly society around us. But with Christ, there is hope. The most important word in this verse is also one of the shortest For we ourselves were once foolish. If you're trusting in Jesus this evening, then these things were true for you once. But not anymore. You used to be just as bad as Crete. But not anymore. Because Paul doesn't just expose our sin here. He also expounds our salvation. I think the first word of verse 4 must be one of the most precious words in the whole Bible. But, but, when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it glorious, rich, beautiful, flowing explanation of the gospel? See how all three members of the Trinity are involved here. God, our Savior, in verse 4. The Holy Spirit, in verse 5. Jesus Christ, our Savior, in verse 6. See how it takes in the entire breadth of our salvation, from our justification in the past, 
to our regeneration by the Spirit, to the hope of eternal life in the future. The whole sentence hangs on those words at the beginning of verse 5. He saved us. And every other clause tells us something marvelous about that astounding fact. So first in verse 4, the time of our salvation, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. God's goodness and his loving kindness are two of his signature moves from the Old Testament. Think of the Psalms. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love, his loving kindness endures forever. And just like God's grace in chapter 2, verse 11, Paul says these things have appeared in Jesus. They've become visible. They've been made manifest. By sending his son down to earth, the father has put his, his infinite love and kindness on display. How? Well, think about what you were like. You were foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to passions and pleasures. Think about all the things you've done, the things that you're most ashamed of, the things that you hope no one ever found out you did or thought or said. God sees every single one of them. And he saved you anyway because of his goodness and his loving kindness. He shows his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. People ask me from time to time, when did you get saved? And I know what they mean. They mean, when did you become a Christian? But you could be a bit cheeky in responding to that question and use Titus 3. God saved me 2,000 years ago when his goodness and loving kindness appeared. Because that is when God saved me. And it's when he saved you too. The time of our salvation. Second, the source of our salvation. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. We've seen throughout Titus how important good works are, haven't we? In verse 1, Paul commanded us, be ready for every good work. But now he stresses equally strongly that those good works contribute absolutely nothing to our salvation. God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Maybe you're investigating all the different religions at the moment. You're trying to decide which one is for me. Well, this is what makes Christianity different to every other religion in the world. Every other religion says, you've got to do all those things, and then maybe God will think about saving you. Christianity said, God has saved you because of his mercy. And now you can live a life of good works that honors him. Our salvation leads to works. Our works don't lead to salvation. Imagine if they did. I mean, I don't think any of us would be saved. I know I wouldn't be. We were slaves. Slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy. So think about all the things you've done again. Think about those things that you're most ashamed of. God knows all of them. And he still says, yes, you get my new creation. Yes, you get my heaven. Yes, you get my son to take the penalty for your sins. Why? Not because you're good, but because I'm merciful, because I'm kind, because I'm compassionate. Not because of your own works, 
but according to his mercy. You know, it's so easy as a Christian to start thinking that you have to serve God out of sense of duty and legalism. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. But when we remember God's mercy, how he saved us, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, when we deserve nothing from him but judgment, well, you suddenly see it's not about I've got to do that. It's that I get to do these things because he saved me by his mercy. It's the source of our salvation. Third, the means of our salvation. God saved us, verse five in the middle, by the, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. I think if I'd have been writing verse five, I'd have said something like, God saved us by sending his son to die for us. God saved us by taking our sins on the cross. Isn't it interesting how Paul gives center stage to the Spirit here? By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Now those two words, regeneration and renewal, they're both to do with new creation. They pick up on God's promise in the Old Testament to purify his people, to give them new hearts, hearts of flesh that will be able to obey him. And that's what Paul says has happened to us. We've received the washing of regeneration. God has sunk all our sins, past, present, and future, down to the bottom of the ocean. And we've received the renewal of the Holy Spirit, that desire when you had, when you first became a Christian, and for the first time you actually wanted to do what God told you to do, because his Spirit was living in you. That's what Paul is talking about here. And that's what God says he's done for you. It's a bit like that game, Operation. If you know this board game, where you have to operate on this little man and use these sort of little metal tweezers to take out all of the bad things. And you take out the tin can that he's swallowed and the ice cream that's giving him brain freeze in his head. And then you have to put back all the organs in the right place. So the heart goes there and the stomach goes there and the intestines go there. And Paul says that God has done just as radical open heart surgery on every single one of us. He's taken out our evil hearts that were enslaved to those passions and pleasures. And he's put a new heart within us, a heart of flesh, because he's given us his spirit to transform us from within. And because of that, we're able to live the godly lives that he calls us to. I think I mentioned last week that I went to see the engine room in HMS Belfast recently. And I used it as an illustration of the transforming power of the gospel. And, you know, in some ways that works as an illustration. But in some ways it's a really bad illustration because, of course, the engines in HMS Belfast haven't been switched on in decades. They're cold, they're powerless, they're covered in asbestos and grime. They're a museum piece. In that sense, HMS Belfast is much more like our old selves are designed to be something, to be a battleship, but lacking any power to actually do that. And that's what Paul says we were like once. We were made to live a godly life, to be God's holy people, to live in his image. But we had no power. Our hearts were, were not right. They were enslaved. But now in Christ Jesus, God has installed a roaring great engine in every single one of us, the V8 turbocharged nitrous enhanced power of his Holy Spirit within us, empowering us to live the godly life he calls us to. 
And it isn't just for a few special Christians over there who are super spiritual. No, it's for all of us. Verse 6, because he's poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, this spirit. Why? Well, to achieve the goal in verse 7, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. To be justified means to be declared innocent before God. It means that God sees you as perfect, not because you are perfect, but because by faith you share in Christ and his perfect righteousness. And because you share Christ's righteous status before God, you also share in Christ's eternal inheritance. We've become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It's an incredible picture of salvation. I hope it makes your heart sing. But Paul's purpose is not just to stir our hearts. It's to change our lives. His point is, we were foolish and disobedient, but God has saved us. We were enslaved to evil passions and pleasures, but now God's spirit lives inside us. We were malicious and envious and loathsome, but now we belong to the hope of eternal life. So live a life in line with who you now are. Verse 8, be careful to devote yourselves to good works. Verses 1 and 2, be submissive to rulers and authorities. Be courteous to all people. Because we don't belong to the evil, ungodly society around us anymore. We've been called to live a new life by the power of the Spirit within us. For most of this week, I've been trying to think of a, a visual aid to illustrate how this logic works. And then someone reminded me that actually lots of us will have experienced one in our baptism. So think back to the day of your baptism or to the last baptism that you saw. Think about how you were lowered into the water. How you were held under as the waters washed around you. As you how you were brought back up again as the, the congregation clapped and cheered. Every part of that experience tells you something wonderful about this salvation. As you were lowered in, symbolizing the fact that the old you, the verse 3 version of you, is dead and gone through Christ. How the waters washed over you as you were held under, symbolizing the fact that you are clean. That you've been washed white as snow in the Lord Jesus and all your sins are gone past, present, and future. How you are brought back up again, out of the water, symbolizing your rebirth, that you are a new creation in Christ, a new person with God's spirit within you. That is what Paul says has happened to you. And because it has, you can adorn the gospel in a post-Christian culture. You can live a godly life in an ungodly society. Because you've been brought into God's kingdom, you've been given a righteous status before him because the transformative power of the Holy Spirit lives in you, making you new every day. I don't know how that will make the biggest difference for you this week. Maybe it will be at work when you're filing your expenses. Oh, your friends are gossiping about someone else in your university halls. Maybe it will be when your neighbor is banging on your door because your bathroom is leaking into her ceiling again. But wherever it is, it will make a difference. 
because you don't belong to this ungodly society anymore. You've been called to live a new life. You've been born again by the Spirit of God to live a better life, a godly life in Christ Jesus. A few years ago, a friend of mine walked away from his job in an employment agency because his boss was making him lie to clients on a regular basis. And to the world, it looked like a really stupid decision. It was a good job, well-paid, high status. But to him, even though it was costly, it was a no-brainer. Because he knew that he wasn't called to use his life anymore for works of evil. He'd been saved by God, given the Holy Spirit, justified by the Lord Jesus, so that he might be zealous for good works, so that he might devote himself to what is excellent and profitable for all people. And he was determined to do that even in an ungodly society. Why don't I pray that the same would be true for us? Gracious Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful salvation. We pray that you would help us to live lives that reflect what you have done for us, that we've been born again and given the hope of eternal life. May that transform us this week as we go out into the world to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen.